Hey, I'm Teresa from Rutland, Vermont. Hi, this is Jen Small from Chicago. I'm Dan from Alexandria, Virginia. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thanks. I'm Jesse Thorne. Judy Greer is an actress, and she gets stopped on the street a lot. The people who stop her always ask her the exact same question. Hey, uh... You look familiar. What do I know you from? So she's been in like a million different things. Could be Arrested Development. Could be It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Could be any one of a whole pile of different movies. And here she is, stuck. People won't let you go. They really won't. They won't let you off the hook. So she has a strategy. She calls it fan profiling. She'll explain. It's bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Judy Greer. The reason people might not be able to place her is because she's basically never the lead. It's kind of like natural selection. You know, I started getting these certain roles as like the sister, the sidekick, the best friend, the assistant. And then those are the roles that you start getting called in for. So it kind of just happened to me. And she's come to terms with that. The lead girl in the movie is never really that funny. I mean, she doesn't get all the funny jokes and she doesn't get to be weird and wacky because she has to be pretty. And when you're the best friend, you know, you can, if I gain 10 pounds, like whatever, man. She's written a new book of essays. It's called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. Then later, what would it feel like to be confronted by your exact physical double? I'll talk about that idea with Richard Ayoade. Because it really then asks the question of, well, what is unique about you? Why do people respond to you? Or why do people connect to you? Why do people like this person rather than that person? If you take out physical variants from it. He's the director of a new movie called The Double. You might also recognize Richard from the IT crowd. Talk a bit about that show, too. Plus, Todd Martins from the LA Times will talk about a couple of records from Y Oak and the Butcherettes that are destined to be your new favorites. Nick Stoller, the director of the new Seth Rogen comedy Neighbors, will talk about the science fiction movie that he wishes he'd made. And lastly, people talk a lot about the two phases of Bill Murray's career. There was Caddyshack and Ghostbusters in the 80s, then Lost in Translation and Broken Flowers in the 2000s. But there's a nearly forgotten movie that was released in 1990, and I think you've got to watch it. All of that is coming up this hour on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When she first got out of school, Judy Greer was auditioning for leading parts and not getting them. So she shifted gears. She became a co-star. Turned out she became one of the most successful co-stars in Hollywood. It stands to reason she's a gifted actress, she's funny, she's beautiful, but she still looks like a real human being you might know in real life. Her new book is appropriately titled, I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. She says when someone recognizes her but can't place her, she does a little fan profiling. Does this person look more like the wedding planner or like they'd like it's always sunny in Philadelphia or maybe like someone who saw Marmaduke on an airplane? 
It's a tough game, though, because in 15 years, Greer has never stopped working. She's been a best friend in a pile of romantic comedies like 27 Dresses and 13 Going on 30. She's been in dramatic films like The Descendants. She's been on every kind of TV show from Two and a Half Men to ER to Arrested Development. On Arrested, she played the memorable role of Kitty Sanchez, an insane administrative assistant bent on driving home every point she makes by showing her boobs. She just finished the new Planet of the Apes film. She's shooting a new series for FX called Married Right Now. And she was just cast in the new Jurassic Park sequel, Jurassic World. She's a busy lady. Here she is in one of her classic supporting roles, one of her first as well, in The Wedding Planner. She played best friend to Jennifer Lopez's character, who is professionally successful and, surprise, surprise, unlucky in love. Let me see. What font would I use? You're going to be a partner! i got to get the account first. Oh, please, Mary, you're totally going to get the account. The Greenberg marriage lasted one year, two months. You win the pot again. How do you do it? I was more than four years off. I honestly love you by Olivia Newton-John was their wedding song. Puts them in the 14-month divorce ring. <laughs> Speaking of honest love, Jed was asking about you again. Uh, I don't trust a man who gets regular pedicures. Mary, you haven't been on a date in two years. Your point? My point is if you're not interested in Jed, there is a handsome Italian man waiting to marry you in the lobby. <laughs> Did you talk to him? Just for a few minutes. He is so adorable. He's not adorable. How can you say that? When we were kids, he followed me around for an entire summer asking me if I had a vagina. <laughs> there was a there was a comment you did a, a Reddit ask me anything the oh, other yeah. day and there was a comment that I found very charming which was uh, from just some dude <laughs> and it was about it was in a thread about a bunch of uh, romantic comedies uh-huh. that you had been in and he just wrote yeah I saw all of these movies my wife made me thank you for making them tolerable. <laughs> That's awesome. There is a very specific kind of thing that you have to do when you are acting in one of these movies and you are not the lead because the best friend is the person that has to set up everything that happens in in the entire movie. So you have to both be believable and essentially narrate the film through exposition. It's so true. And that was a great clip because I was listening to the... I knew what you were doing and I was like, what am I getting out? That she wants to be a partner, that she's close, that she has to nail this wedding so she can be a partner, that she always wins the pool and how long the weddings last, that she doesn't have a boyfriend, that one guy likes... Like, it was amazing. I was like, wow, one scene. I really like... When, When you started auditioning, when you started auditioning in LA after acting school, mm-hmm. um, were you? What was it like when you started walking into auditions and you weren't auditioning for a play against theater school people? Right. You were auditioning for you know the lead role in a WB series, and you were there in one of these weird rooms full of spectacularly beautiful television people. So beautiful. It was weird because um, uh, they all looked so pretty and they were so skinny and they all seemed really happy and well-adjusted and they never dropped anything and their fly (laughs) was never open and they never like thought, like I always run into an audition waiting room like I'm going to pee my pants because you're stuck in traffic for so long to get there. Like they never did that. Maybe they didn't go to the bathroom, those girls. I don't know. But I don't look like these girls and we're auditioning for the same roles and I don't really understand where I fit into this. When did you make that pivot that you describe in the book between trying to be and not being especially successful at being uh, the superstar lead role and all of a sudden working pretty much right away being the co-star? Yeah. Well, I didn't 
really make that decision on my own. <laughs> it kind of gets made for you. You know, you start – when I came here, I just um, – like I – audition for everything. I went in for everything that they sent me on. I would audition five times a day. I just kept auditioning. And and then it's kind of like natural selection. You know, I started getting these certain roles as like the sister, the sidekick, the best friend, the assistant. And then those are the roles that you start getting called in for. And so it kind of just happened to me. And I didn't make a decision to like stop trying to be the lead, but I but I love working and I love the roles that I get. And they're crowd pleaser roles, you know. They People like them and respond to them. And it's fun to make people laugh and didn't really bother me that much. But, um, but yeah, it just kind of was like a natural – it was very organic. Did it give you a sense of what you were good at? Because one of the things that's special about the best friend role in a romantic comedy specifically – is that it's one of the only roles historically in Hollywood movies where a woman gets to be funny. Yeah. I mean, thankfully it's changing, you know, with like great women comedians right now, like starring in movies and making movies and making television shows. And um, But yeah, it was it was kind of true. The, the lead girl in the movie is never really that funny. I mean, she doesn't get all the funny jokes and she doesn't get to be weird and wacky because she has to be pretty. And when you're the best friend, you know, you can... If I gain 10 pounds, like, whatever, man. Like, no one tells me, you look fat, you need to lose weight. I can do whatever I want with my hair. I can do whatever I want with my makeup. Usually my wardrobe is a little more interesting. It's not as important. You've worked really consistently through your career, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. I mean, we're looking at at 15 years and something coming up on 100 movies (laughs) and television programs and other acting roles. Yeah. Um, And I wonder if... Uh, when you were relatively early in your career, um, even though you were working consistently, it was it, there was a part of you that that didn't want to turn things down. Yeah, a hundred percent, and that's definitely still the case. I like, I'm always convinced that every job I get will be my last, and and I didn't really turn anything down, and I don't actually turn a lot down. I mean. I like working. I love being on set. I love meeting new people. And I I kind of think of it as like stopping the momentum. An object in motion stays in motion. And I always sort of think that with my work. You write a lot about in the book you're uh, growing up in the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah. And you seem very Midwestern in that <laughs> you are very hesitant to give yourself credit for anything. I know I am. Are you Are you in your... Is that is that a public facing issue, or is that also in, living inside of you? Um, I think it's living inside of me. I I was always, you know, you're. Well, I was taught not to brag, not to boast that at any given minute it could all be taken away from me. Um, my mom, who is awesome, <laughs> she's weird sometimes. The things that she says. I remember she was at my house. This was a few years ago, and I have a cute little house, and I like it, and it's nice. And she was like, your house is so cute. And I was like, thanks, Mom. And she goes, I hope you get to keep it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I was Mom. like, Mom, I'm doing okay. Like, I didn't I didn't get a big mansion. It's, it's small. It's 1,300 square feet. Like, I'm careful about, you know, my mortgage payment is, is reasonable. Like, I'm okay. It's okay. It's funny. And then I was like, oh, that's where I get it from, like, that at any given minute it could all be taken away from me 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Judy Greer. Her book of essays is called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. Can you give me some idea of what it is like for you when someone comes up to you in the real world and knows you but doesn't know why? Well, it's it's not super terrible, but it is definitely time-consuming. <laughs> and that's my only real irritation comes from the time-consuming aspect of it, at least lately, because people won't let you go. They really won't. They won't let you off the hook. They need to satisfy. They need to scratch the itch they of do. who is this person I mean, that I recognize. so badly. Like, it's pretty intense sometimes. I was just in Toronto and New York doing stuff for my book, and I and I was, like, going through customs. I, my flight got in from Toronto into Newark at, like, 10, 9 or 10 p.m., and I'm so tired, and I've been doing press all day and was wearing very uncomfortable shoes. And, um, and the guy, the customs agent held on to my he was super sweet his name was bill um he hung on to my passport and my ticket my little like customs thing until i told him stuff that i was in and i don't really think he he wasn't like holding it hostage he just happened to have it in his hands when he was like well what are you in why do i know you why do i know you what are you in and i just wanted to be like oh please bill please can i can I please just – and he asked for my autograph at the end of it all. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you've done such a variety of projects. I mean the people who watch Two and a Half Men are I'm sure very different from the people who watch The Descendants or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia yes. or whatever and so – or Marmaduke. <laughs> but I wonder if you could just – as an example, if you could give me – like if I came up to you, which I might – <laughs> I would have a hard time not doing it because I'm a fan of yours. Thank you. Uh, but if I couldn't place exactly why I was a fan of yours, <laughs> if you might try fan profiling. I mean, you, I would go Arrested Development because I, I just feel like you're like very hip and cool looking. And that would be, I would say you were an original Arrested Development fan. Well, I stole the pilot screener from the commercial radio station I was interning for. Yes. So I was so excited that there was a new show with David Cross yeah. and Jeffrey Tambor. Let's take a listen to a clip from Arrested Development. So your character, <laughs> you have a, you had a recurring character, a, new, a frequently recurring character on Arrested Development named Kitty Sanchez. Mm-hmm. And she was the assistant and sometime love interest. <laughs> of all of, of, them. of Yes. <laughs> especially of George, George Sr., who yes. owned the company that was the sort of central uh, MacGuffin in the program. <laughs> and his son, Michael, had a lot of trouble with Kitty. Uh, because once he, Michael, became head of the company, he discovered that Kitty had a lot of valuable and dangerous information. <laughs> so he, she has to be, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And so he f- fired her mm-hmm. um, when she went on spring break to a place called Senior Tadpoles. Sure. And now he is trying, in this scene, he is trying to <laughs> unfire her because he's realized that he's made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I just... Make believe that none of this ever happened and just start fresh. Michael, of course I'll come back. Because I never really left because we both know that you can't fire people. Well, I did fire you and now I'm hiring you back. You don't have authority over me. They don't have nachos here. You know what, Kitty? Why don't we forget it? Because I've been trying to be very, very generous to you and you don't respect me. So I'm firing you, okay? You are fired. All right, Michael. But... I know where things are, and you don't, and you are asking for a whole world of trouble. If you're threatening me, you're going to be very sorry. Are you threatening me? Yeah, that's a threat. I'm threatening you. Did you hear that, everyone? Michael Bluth is 
threatening me! I gotta get out of here. You're a part of the story. Can't be a part of the story. Can't be a part of the story. Say goodbye to your company, Michael. And say goodbye to these. Because it's the last time. <laughs> That's it. Oh my god, she's such a freak. I love it. <laughs> At the end, she lifts her shirt. Which Michael's not, I mean, it's, he's trying to avoid that. Yeah. I actually have some bad news for you. Oh. Which is this. I, I'm, you very nearly got it right when you fan profiled me. However. Um, Do the, you go Archer? I'm an Archer man. All right. Uh, Archer is what I recognize you from, despite the fact that your face does not appear on screen <laughs> because it's an animated show. Um, Archer's my my favorite show on television, and you play this character character named uh, Cheryl Tunt. Yes. <laughs> uh, now known by another name, Charlene. Charlene. Um, and she is a billionaire secretary, mm-hmm. um, now country superstar, mm-hmm. um, but a, who is really into rough sex. Yeah. Uh, she's just a real. She's a real situation. She's a hot mess. That one. She is. <laughs> I I believe that my role was not supposed to be on the show. I think it was supposed to be sort of like a one time thing. And Adam Reed, who is a genius and writes everything and does everything, he said that once we cast you, we wanted to make it more um, like a beef up the role a little bit more, which is hugely flattering coming from him. And another thing that was different about the pilot is I was always meant to be this like weepy secretary who was always pining for Archer. And so it was really cool to see the shift in my character when they kind of decided to like use me for my strengths, which my penchant for being like a crazy girl. Let's take a listen to a scene from Archer. So uh, Cheryl, as we mentioned, is a secretary at, uh, and she is the secretary for Mallory Archer, who is the boss of ISIS, mm-hmm. which is the spy agency that is at the heart of Archer. And in this scene, she just suggested a code name for a new operation. The code name she suggested is Dick Sledge. <laughs> um, and needless to say, her coworkers then ask her why, why in the name of all things holy, she would suggest that name as the code name for a spy operation. So then it's settled. We're a go on Operation... Ooh, what should we call it? Dick Sledge. You wanna... No, but it's like sour milk. You just gotta take a whiff. What's the story, neckbones? Sophomore year at my stupid college, I had a huge crush on the quarterback, this super hot guy named Dick Sledge. It was like I was invisible. He wouldn't even sign my cast when I broke my own arm. But I thought, if I knew what he liked, then I'd have an end. So one Saturday when he had a game, I broke into his dorm room to see what kind of music he was into, or turtles, or roll around in his clothes, or whatever. But you were so busy sniffing his jock, you didn't hear him come in? Because he totally snuck up on me! Then I guess I blacked out because I don't remember stabbing him at all. Why'd you have a knife? I didn't. It was a stupid pair of scissors. And it was his fault for grabbing me with his throwing hand. That's how his tendon got severed. They said he could have gone pro. So, glossing over why you broke your own arm. So he'd sign my cast. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I forgot about that. Um, I had to, and it's great. (laughs) Um, do you ever get a script for this television program and think, 
that may be too much? No. No, I don't. You I, have a best friend who eats cocaine, by the way, on the yes. show. Yeah, in all forms. My favorite is yogurt. I love that they make <laughs> cocaine yogurt. I love my relationship with Pam because we are we're a wreck together. Like I am ne- I mean, we clearly are best friends, but like we can't stand each other also. I think I, I don't know. I don't think we could function without each other. Um but uh yeah, I'd never think it's too much. Oh man. I guess I guess I could I could do an hour <laughs> just about I, I could do an hour just about her new role as a country music superstar. I know. It's great. She's amazing and that that's like this weird you know, she now has this like weird trait, this quality that no one knew about her, and that's how they're going to make money. And oh, it's so funny. All of them living in her mansion. So good. Where does he think of these things? Can we say her new catchphrase together? Uh, yeah. You want? Should I scream it? Yeah, we should from... scream it. We'll scream it. We'll just. We'll I'm not it. moving my microphone because okay. I'll never get it back. Ready? Outlaw country. country! Judy, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. So fun. Say goodbye to these. <laughs> Judy Greer's new book is called <laughs> I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. <laughs> After a break, we'll hear from Nick Stoller. He's the director of Neighbors. It's a new comedy that stars Seth Rogen. He'll tell us about the science fiction movie he wishes he'd made and what he learned from it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's finally time to announce the music lineup of the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, a.k.a. BoatParty.biz. Your host is John Roderick, the raconteur and leader of The Long Winters. We've got rapper Jean Grey on board. You heard her on this show just a couple of weeks ago. The indie rockers Lake, who you might know as the artist behind the closing theme of the television program, Adventure Time, will be there. And it will all be capped off by the 14 members. Yes, we are bringing 14 members of the Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra. It's going to be a party. Find more information online at BoatParty.biz. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Artists, the people that make stuff, are always influenced by the work of others. And sometimes an artist sees something so good, so perfect, that they wish they'd made it themselves. This happens so often to the people we talk to that we made it a segment. It's called, I Wish I'd Made That. You're about to hear from the director, Nick Stoller. He's got a new movie out called Neighbors. Wicca, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Are you our new neighbors? We're your new neighbors. You might have seen his other comedies, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, The Five-Year Engagement. I've always wanted to direct comedy. I've been obsessed with comedy ever since I was a kid, ever since I read my first Dave Barry book (laughs) and, like, watched Monty Python. So is it weird that Stoller wants to talk to us about a science fiction movie? Not really. I look at the world through a comic lens, you know, and I, and I actually find, like, my favorite movies, whether they're in the comedy genre or not, have some kind of comedy. Like, one of my favorite directors is uh, Stanley Kubrick. Even his darkest movies, you know, The Shining, for example, have comedic elements. But he's not going to talk about 2001. He's going to talk about a film directed by Alfonso Cuaron, Children of Men. I remember seeing the trailer 
and thinking that looks bad. And then I read this review and it was so ecstatic. And so a friend of mine and I went, it was kind of an empty theater. It blew my mind. It was like, it was so strange to be in an empty theater, seeing a movie that not many people were talking about at the time. And I think critics were, but that just was incredible. It, it felt to me like what it must have been like sitting down to watch 2001, you know, for the first time in a movie theater without it being part of the canon. One of the things Stoller appreciates most about Children of Men is the way it establishes a believable near-future setting. The opening scene does an amazing job of showing, not telling. The Homeland Security Bill is ratified. After eight years, British borders will remain closed. The deportation Sets up the world without, like, a scrolling Chiron at the beginning that's explaining to you what's happening. And it's a kind of weird world. People have stopped giving birth and there are no more babies. The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. You're with Clive Owen, and he's in a bodega, and he looks up at, there's a TV playing in the corner. The news is on, and it's about the the youngest uh, guy on Earth gets uh, assassinated. He struggled all his life with the celebrity status thrust upon him as the world's youngest person. And the whole world is crying because this youngest guy alive, and then they talk about who the next youngest person is now that he's been killed. So you're already in this weird world where you're like, this is something really messed up. Clive Owen plays kind of this depressed, kind of cynical guy. He gets his coffee or whatever, I can't remember exactly what it is, and he walks outside, and I think it's all with one shot. And he walks outside and you realize you're in London, but it's a weird future London where there's there's a double-decker bus and things are kind of falling apart. There's a guy riding a rickshaw, so you get the sense that this is a more globalized world. Everyone looks pretty depressed. <laughs> so, you know, you, there's a sense that the world is kind of falling apart. It feels like it's just setting up the world. And then suddenly, a building behind Clive Owen explodes. And it happens in the deep background. Clive Owen is hurt by the explosion. There's ringing in his ears, and it's shocking. Putting action in the deep background um, and being with your character is way more shocking for the viewer and more exciting than cutting to an explosion. I actually ripped off an idea from that for Get Him to the Greek, which obviously has nothing in common with this movie, but in a comedy, you want a joke to get a laugh needs to be a surprise, needs to be shocking. There's a fight in Vegas, and it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. Uh, Diddy is chasing Russell and Jonah out of uh, the hotel, and they jump into a car, and they're driving, and Diddy's chasing them down the street. I wanted to be with Jonah and Russell in the car, and then through the window, you see Diddy chasing them, and then a car comes out of nowhere and hits Diddy. And it played so well because the audience didn't see it coming because you didn't cut to a camera shot that tipped your hat, basically. The reason Children of Men is the thing I wish I'd made is I think it's I think it's just a perfect film, you know, and there are not many of them. When I saw it, I was completely transported in a way I rarely am. I forgot that I was watching a movie. You know, and, and I've had similar experiences with comedies. Like when I saw There's Something About Mary, that blew my mind. Like I, I, I've never laughed that hard in my life, you know. This is a similar kind of experience. You're not laughing. You're kind of gasping and in shock silence. But it's a similar thing with Children of Men that one hopes to achieve with any film, which is to transport the viewer out of their bodies. Director Nick Stoller on the thing he wishes he'd made, the movie Children of Men. Stoller's own movie, Neighbors, is in theaters now.
I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. It's spring. That means it's time for change. Time to retire the music that you've had on repeat all winter long and find a fresh new record to be your favorite. I'm joined by Todd Martins, who covers music for the Los Angeles Times, to talk about two very different new rock releases that are worth checking out. Hey, Todd, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we have two bands, both fronted by women, uh, very different in almost every other respect. <laughs> um, one kind of feral, guitar-driven, the other sort of ethereal and reflective and very synthy. Um, let's start with Les Butcherettes um, and their new album, Cry is for the Flies. Uh, here's a little bit of Demon Stuck in Your Eye. So this is a band that is based here in L.A., but actually has its roots in Guadalajara in Mexico? Uh, that is correct. Uh, the lead vocalist that you heard there, uh, Terry Suarez, she was born uh, in Colorado, moved to Guadalajara, which is where she formed the band. And these days she sort of lives in Los Angeles, sort of lives down in Texas, sort of lives with her mom, lives with some friends, back and forth. It has a kind of a, a riot girl feel. It definitely does. I mean, she's uh, that song, what we just heard there, that only sort of hints at sort of the um, you know, craziness that she will do. She, her voice can go sort of very carnival-esque, kind of cartoonish at times. She can get very demented. She can growl. She can howl. You know, she's been compared to, uh, you know, Karen O from the Yaya Yaz. Um, I hear a little bit more sort of Iggy Pop and Joe Strummer in there in the sense that she's just willing to sort of be like all emotion as, a, as opposed to form. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Let's talk about a completely different new record, uh, Y Oak's new album, which is called Shriek. Um, we'll hear a little bit of Despicable Animal. So for folks who aren't familiar with the new record but are familiar with their first album, the fact that that sounds so sort of synth-poppy and new wavy will leave them kind of agog because initially they were a very sort of folky band. In fact, like uh, the main complaint about them was like, oh, great, they're so folky. <laughs> yeah, they definitely sort of owed a bit of a debt to the band like Yola Tango bit of an indie pop, a little bit sort of guitar fuzz. Over the years, they've gradually been experimenting with ways to sort of use the guitar less and less and less. This record pretty much does away with it, and it's more about intricate, almost like latticework sort of electronic uh, arrangements and finding ways to use those electronic arrangements to, uh, you know, communicate with one another. You know, it's not, the electronic stuff isn't just sort of shadowing the melody. It's really trying to sort of create this synthetic, you know, universe that, you know, I think it feels very intimate. I think there, I, I, I'm interested in you 
saying that, that in describing that intimacy because there are bands that use electronic instrumentation to essentially to alienate mm-hmm. and um, there are those who use them in for lack of a better word a more organic way a way that's supposed to ingratiate um, and it seems like this is maybe a little more of the latter I think so I mean it's almost kind of been you know it's a duo so it's almost sort of been the band is awful always sort of felt like a conversation between uh, two people and you know this record especially you know some of these lyrics um, you know she has a way of singing that's very kind of it's a little bit soulful but not super soulful and it's very kind of plain spoken in a way and it it seems to sort of capture like sort of a late night conversation as opposed to you know just trying to be cold or you know distance it's really about trying to create using digital effects that try to create warmth. Todd Martins of the Los Angeles Times recommends Y Oak's new album Shriek as well as Les Butcherettes. Their new album is called Cry is for the Flies. You can find his writing online on the Pop and Hiss blog. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the UK, Richard Ayuadi's face is instantly recognizable to millions of people. He was a sitcom star, acting alongside Chris O'Dowd in the hit show The IT Crowd. Here in the States, he might be just as well-known for the cult classic show he co-created, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. That parody of 80s schlock horror aired on Adult Swim a few years ago. Ayoade even starred in a Hollywood blockbuster a couple years ago. It was called The Watch. The other stars were Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn, and Jonah Hill, some guys you might have heard of. But perhaps Ayoade's greatest calling is as a director. In 2010, he directed the coming-of-age film Submarine, which treated the self-obsession of adolescence with uncommon empathy. His newest film is The Double. In it, a young man named Simon is trapped in both unrequited love and a cold, lonely work life. After seven years, he can't even seem to get the security guard at the office to recognize him, much less remember his name. Then another man shows up named James. James looks exactly like Simon— But his temperament is breezy, and his tone is a little bit unctuous. He seems to win at everything, especially women. In this scene, James and Simon sit down for lunch. Both characters, by the way, are played by Jesse Eisenberg. Simon speaks first. What will it be? What do you want to... Okay, no, sorry, then. I'll just have a Coke and a bagel. We're out of bagels. Right, then, um... Right, then I'll just... Come on. Right, sorry, I just, uh, I'll just, I, I can't, I'll just have the Coke then, I guess. A Coke. And you? A coffee. A coffee. And scrambled eggs. You don't serve breakfast in the evening? Why not? Because it says so on the menu. Well, do you still have eggs here? Yeah. And do you have a frying pan? Yeah. Then do me a favor and make me some scrambled eggs. Fine. Anything else? Bacon. Bacon. And toast. And toast. And a beer. And a beer. Anything else? No, that's it. Are you sure? Just give me the damn food. There's something very disconcerting about hearing that only in audio form. I mean, it's also somewhat disconcerting to look at. Right. Um, but it, it's a it's a movie that has a really specific aesthetic visually, a kind of um, – I've, I've read you describe it as like what if the, the future as imagined in the 50s. Like the future has slightly gotten wrong. Yes, exactly. Um but also hearing it, you can hear those sounds in it that are very mm. unsettling. <laughs> well, um, yes, a lot of it's just slowed down 
clanks on pipes and things slow down about 50 times and so that they have strange resonances. It, it put me in mind of, uh, actually, of Garth Marenghi a little bit because ev- everything, uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is a show, I don't know, maybe you can explain the premise of the show. You'll do a better job than I. Oh, I don't know. I think you should do it. I'm, okay. I, I, it's so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so it is, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is a show that you uh, co-wrote and in which you co-starred it is built around a character named Garth Marenghi. He is a sort of Stephen King, Michael Crichton type figure, a best-selling author from the 80s, who in the 80s got to create and direct his own television program, which is kind of a horror slash medical show. And the television show that you created is a fictional DVD commentary slash retrospective on that show that the fictional Garth Marenghi created back in the 80s. The aesthetic of the show in our real world is that everything is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Every single choice that they can make, not in a big campy way, but in a straight down the middle way is wrong. Yeah, he has bad aesthetic judgment. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, he, he directs the show. So it's his choice how it looks like but you sometimes get that in certain exploitation films that have a very strong author behind them you know that they said oh we don't need coverage here this is fine and then the close-up is a massive blow up of the wide or (laughs) you know all of these you can almost feel the story behind it when you're looking at some of these films you know they didn't have a lot of time to film this what was the appeal to uh, you and your collaborators on your sh- on that show because this was the show that made your reputation. You were straight out of college when you made this show, pretty much. I mean, it's odd in in some ways. It, I always feel somewhat indecorous speaking about it without Matt because it's it's just it doesn't feel like it's my. You know, it was so um, joint. I mean, we did stage shows. We did two stage shows in Edinburgh, and essentially back then, if you won this award, the Perrier, you more or less got a show. Because I guess they could say, if you were commissioned, well, it won the Perrier, you know. We didn't know no one would like it. It seemed that people liked it in the room. And so we we got a TV show. Um, and, you know, it was probably not the thing that they wanted. <laughs> um, so, you know, various things like people would say, the acting in this is really bad, uh, can we mention something to them about it? They just seem very wooden in it. And it, it seems quite badly framed, perhaps. I know Richard's never directed anything. Maybe we... I don't know. So it was odd. I think even though on, on paper everything was described and, you know, we were going to do this, it was going to be set in the... I think when people saw it and saw a comedy show which has no reaction shots in, where you don't have someone saying a joke and someone looking askance back at them, which is the architecture of, you know, sitcom jokes. And they had a soundtrack that was chewed on tape and was odd. And I think they probably thought, hmm, this may not be the the show we choose to brand the channel with. I'm Garth Marenghi, author, dreamweaver, visionary, plus actor. You are about to enter the world of my imagination. 
You are entering my dark place. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Richard Ayoade. He's an actor. You might have seen him in the British sitcom The IT Crowd with Chris O'Dowd. He's also a director. His new movie is called The Double, and it stars Jesse Eisenberg. Let's hear a scene from the IT crowd. So you played Maurice Moss, who's one of the two IT guys at this company. And just before this scene, you walked into your office and you saw that your office was on fire. And so you tried to put it out and you tried calling the emergency services department and neither of those worked. And now you are just sitting at your computer directly opposite the fire uh, typing on your computer. Subject... Fire. Dear Sir Stroke Madam, I'm writing to inform you of a fire which has broken out at the premises of... No, that's too formal. <laughs> Dear Sir Stroke Madam, fire! Exclamation mark. Fire! Exclamation mark. Help me! Exclamation mark. One, two, three, Carandon Road. Looking forward to hearing from you. All the best... Maurice Moss. Strange, I haven't heard. Yeah, I haven't. It's heard great. That since the time. It's hilarious. You got cast in this show and became a huge star in the UK, or at least a very pretty significant star in the UK. Well, I mean, the show, the IT Crowd, is all written and directed by Graham Linehan. I mean, I uh, was a big fan of Graham's before I did the show, and I, I really like him personally, and. I, this show he did Father Ted which is just a masterpiece I think with Arthur Matthews and he did Big Train he wrote on the day to day all of my favourite shows so for me it was a complete pleasure to be in a show that he wrote you know I was so happy Did you do, did you and do you like being a, a public personage? Well you, um, do, you do panel shows in the UK now too which which you didn't do for a while No um I didn't do them uh and then I did one and the world kept going <laughs> and I thought oh, okay it's okay Do you like acting? I'm not nuts about um seeing me doing it I enjoyed being in that show simply because I was doing Graham's writing and I liked the actors. And in a way, I really liked rehearsing. Being in front of the audience was quite nerve-wracking, but nice. And, you know, they're always very nice. But, you know, if someone said you can never perform again, I would probably go, that's fine. I wouldn't, I wouldn't protest. As long as I knew I could kind of write and I'd be fine. When you finish something, do you do you ever feel happy with it? There are there are brief moments of uh, happiness that occur throughout, um, but it it's such a situation directing where it starts off and it's all wrong. Generally, everything's wrong, and you're just trying to make it less wrong. But by the time you finish. It's strange to sit back and then go, ah, it's done and now I can really enjoy looking at it because you would never look at it by that stage. You've seen it so many times. I don't know. It's just not quite right. There's this uh, story we heard about Martin Amos when we were doing Garth Marenghi 
that his idea of having a good time was smoking a joint and rereading one of his old novels. <laughs> and he thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever heard. The idea of, you know, reading a novel you wrote <laughs> is just the funniest image to me. I'm sure it's, you know, an apocryphal story. But After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Richard Ayoade, plus the best heist movie Bill Murray ever co-directed. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Do you think it's okay to finish someone else's food? Do you have a fight with your friend over whether or not he should wear his Phillies garb to a Colorado Rockies game? Does your wife want to keep a chamber pot in her art studio? If so, please do not write in to Judge John Hodgman. I heard all those cases already. Judge John Hodgman is the show where I, John Hodgman, adjudicate disputes between real people calling in over the Internet, and I tell them who is right and who is wrong over such important issues as is a machine gun a robot and is it okay to go through the garbage at the Canadian House of Pizza and Garbage? Bailiff Jesse Thorne rounds out the cast for a fun-filled podcast of judgment and justice. Kind of two of the same thing, actually. Judge John Hodgman, take a listen if you do not mind. I order it. Come visit the courtroom. It is open to all and located at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Richard Ayoade. He's the director of a new movie called The Double. It's about a government clerk named Simon, played by Jesse Eisenberg. His life is slowly usurped by James, a new employee who happens to be an exact physical double of Simon. Personality-wise, though, they're opposites. James is confident and charismatic, everything Simon wishes he could be, but isn't. Let's talk a little bit more about your new movie, The Double. It's based on a novel by Dostoevsky. Yeah. And um, I wonder what appealed to you about uh, the idea of a doppelganger. Well, I mean, initially it was it, it was Avi Kareen's idea to adapt the novella, and I ended up writing with him, but it was his idea, and he's a big Dostoevsky fan, and he thought it was primarily a really good part for an actor, which I think was borne out, and I think Jesse's great in it, and it really affords that, you know, I guess, platform for an actor to really show a, a, a very wide range. Especially given that, I mean, in the context of this thing, it's not just two guys playing, it's not just a guy playing two different parts, but it's a guy playing two different parts that look exactly the same, and so... It's is internal transformation rather than an external transformation that that has to happen to sell the role. Exactly, and it's that's why Jesse was so suited to that part. I felt was that he is an actor who has played a variety of different characters, but you know, up until now, has always really looked like himself. And I think someone like Jack Lemmon is similar in that way, and that the transformation, as you say, is from a, a kind of internal point of animation and. On a still frame of Jesse in the edit, we could tell which character he was playing immediately. Like, they just looked different, and that was... I found it almost upsetting how much control he seemed to have over me as an audience member. To see him, just through his manner, connect with me in a completely different way, I wanted to be like, hey, you know, get your own feelings. Right. Well, <laughs> were, you, were you messing with mine? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's I think he's a brilliant actor. I I I just can't think of 
anyone who has that kind of range that he has. But to me, the specific reason why the doppelganger in this was interesting is the idea which is from the novella that this person is so unremarkable that no one notices when the doppelganger appears. And that, I thought, was such a brilliant idea of how to take the story because it really then asks the question of, well, what is unique about you? Why do people respond to you or why do people connect to you? Why do people like this person rather than that person? If you take out physical variants from it and if people are able to decide they like that person over that person without talking to them what is being transmitted. And that's a very amazing thought, I think. Um, And funny, really. It was just, to me, the bit in the novel when he's just saying, you don't notice that he looks like me? And people going, "Mm, not really. Just seemed a very funny idea. What about for you personally? I mean, there are some uh, there are some interesting parallels that I see, and you know, you can tell me if they actually have any bear any relevance. Um, your parents are uh, Nigerian and Norwegian, yeah, and you're British. Yeah. Are your parents first generation immigrants? I, I wasn't clear on. Yeah, that. they are. So the you know the immigration experience. And the, I, I presume or am told, the experience of being biracial are both experiences that ask you to consider, you know, who you are in the world and how you perform yourself in the world, essentially. Right. I mean, but, I mean, I, I lived in, well, I was born in London and lived near Elephant and Castle. And then we moved to Suffolk, um, the... Jewel of the East in uh, England when I was around six or seven and there wasn't an enormous Norwegian-Nigerian community there. (laughs) Um, Just, you know, about seven or eight thousand of us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was aware that there were no other people who looked like me. But on the other hand, my parents didn't look like me and that wasn't odd either. So you have a sense of outsideness, but I I was also an only child, so you know I mean, that's one of the strange. things about one of the things about the the doppelganger question is that you don't just feel like an out like you ha- there it's two two different things at the same time um you mean as in a doppelganger is part of you yeah yeah i mean it's interesting. I think everything that happens in your upbringing has some kind of bearing on on what you're interested in. Um, but in some ways, I don't know, maybe you feel somewhat less of an outsider without a few other people to feel like outsiders with. And so because you literally can't particularly see yourself... I mean, everyone in, well, around then, there was no one else who, (laughs) there's certainly no other Norwegian Nigerians. Um, Not like we have now, you know, now we're just everywhere. But Mm -hmm. back then, in the the early 80s, there was a drought of Norwegian Nigerians. You know, that's also, uh, I think, a theme of the film. Um, 
you know, the way that it is that are, you know, when when Jesse Eisenberg's original character, Simon, has this new guy, James, come into his office, he go, he asks his best friend, who's not that good of a friend, yeah. to come and look at the guy and says, does this guy remind you of anybody? And he says, I don't know. Yeah. And he says, does he look exactly like me? And the guy says, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And you realize his, um, you know, his solipsism, which we all have, you know, that we all can only see the world through our own eyes. Yes, and your concerns are not those of others necessarily. And that is what was one of the many interesting components of the story that really this character is really self-obsessed and um, can't get over himself in that respect. And, I mean, that's interesting. But also that you need other people to form your identity. You know, there's that... um, story that people always love to hear which is that some celebrity couldn't get into a bar and then they unleash the famous phrase don't you know who I am and the reality is is that unless they know you are Keanu Reeves you are not Keanu Reeves you're just a dude in a beanie trying to get into a bar so you need the participation of other people to be yourself in in one regard Let's take a listen to another scene from my guest Richard Ayoade's uh, new movie called The Double. So in this scene, the protagonist, Simon's longtime crush and co-worker, whose name is Hannah, um, has gone on a date with Simon's double, whose name is James. Um, James is the sort of very charismatic uh, version of Simon. And so Simon goes down to the copy room where she works uh, with a sort of pretext um, to see if he can p- figure out what happened on the date. Hi. Uh, I know the policy, but my printer is actually broken again. So, how's your growth? Yeah, now the creepy guy's here again. Yeah. Hi, creepy guy. Hey, Hannah. I was just telling your colleague that I know the policy, but my printer is actually broken again. Oh, I thought that you fixed it with elbow grease. Yes. Do you want me to call someone up to fix it? What's your desk number? Oh, no, 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 I just, no, 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 I actually need the copy pretty urgently, yeah, uh, it's a report of special importance to the colonel, he's taken a particular interest in my findings lately, well, I don't know, I haven't actually met him in person, but I think he knows a lot about my work, so maybe I'll just, oh, that reminds me, you had your date with James, did you, was that last night? Did you want me to photocopy that? Yes, please, that is why I'm here. There's something really scary in the movie about the feeling of losing control of one's own life. Right. Yeah, it's an unpleasant feeling, you know, being at the mercy of... I mean, even just the sense... The panic of being locked out of a building is just... Suddenly your entire life isn't going to work. You go, I'm going to have to sleep. I mean, I'm going to have to sleep rough. I can't get out. I can't get in. I don't know how... I don't have my phone. And very quickly... It feels like you're one small thing away from being homeless. Do you think of your your movie, The Double, as being, you know, it has a very oppressive feeling. It's very oppressively, it it has a very oppressive aesthetic in almost every way. Yeah. You know, it's kind of scary. It's funny in moments. Um, I wonder if you think of it as being pessimistic or optimistic. I feel it's optimistic, ultimately. Um 
in the same way that you could say The Shining was optimistic. <laughs> um, but apparently Kubrick said that, you know, a ghost story is an optimistic thing because it says there's, you know, there's more than this world and that is optimistic. Um, so to me it's really about whether something feels like it has some kind of validity or substance or is truthful and or is funny or really sad in the right way is optimistic because it means that someone was able to communicate a feeling that felt genuine and that's a really optimistic thing for me well richard i, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on bullseye it was great to talk to you thanks it's great to talk to you richard ayoade's new movie is called the double um, and you can also check out his last movie, which is really wonderful, called uh, Submarine on DVD and so forth. Hey, podcast listeners, we've got a cruise coming up. Maybe you didn't know. It happens July 25th through 28th, just a couple of months from now. And you'll get to sail to the Bahamas with some of our favorite comedians on the planet. All this month, we're sharing some of their material with you. So let's take a listen this week to Greg Barrett as he recounts the time he met one of his all-time heroes, Van Halen's David Lee Roth, Diamond Dave. So I liked Van Halen as a youth. Like when I was young and my band was Van Halen, and, and this was pre-everything that you all have. And uh, <laughs> so you just had your album covers really to look at the band and then at the handful of magazines. You didn't spend a lot of time with them. And, and, and for me, Van Halen was transitioning from being a jock sort of into this world where the leader of this particular group had the freedom to uh, assume me. I assume I, was, I could never figure him out. Was, I couldn't figure out David Lee Roth because on one level there was a bravado and, and the and the content the song says i like women you know but then the but then the the spandex pants and the furry ski boots made you curious mm, really like i'm not sure where you're coming from i like the progressive idea happening here i love that you're challenging me with a furry boot you know and a spandex pants. oh look at that you've got a chap on with no back end there's a bottom showing in the, 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 I think it was Women and Children First uh, album came with a poster of David Lee Roth chained somehow to a chain link fence with uh, just leather, sh- leather pants on. Like, who's that even for? Like, women don't, like, I don't know any woman that's like, oh, that's so hot. Like, and then he, was, and he was even chained but on his knees, so like you couldn't, he looked like a dog. It was, I just... I could never figure out what it was. And earlier, I think it was Nick that said, don't, don't go back. Don't, and I really do believe this. Don't revisit your past. You're having these great moments now. Let them just sort of hang and enjoy them and move on. Don't go back and try and figure it out. Because a couple years ago, I got invited to meet David Lee Roth. Now, this is on the, the David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar tour. So these are lean times for Mr. Roth. And I've been invited onto his bus. And uh, I go on the bus. And I'm excited because it's David Lee Roth. And he was sort of my... You know, my, the voice of my youth, and, and, uh, and I'm, you know, it's exciting, and he's lovely, he's very nice, gracious, come on in, man, you know, and uh, he's just the same as he is on stage. And then two hours later, I'm like, when does it stop? He won't stop talking. Like, he wouldn't stop talking. Like, he would talk, and then he would do this thing where he would stare at you when he was finished answering a question that hadn't been asked. So... <laughs> you'd be on the bus, and he'd be like, well, what we do is high-velocity folk music, man. And then he'd just hit you with that grin, 
like a big open mouth grin, like he was waiting for something, and then just stare at you. And then you were like, I, God, I can't turn away. What's happening? Please stop. Like, please, God, stop. I want to go home now. Like, it's enough. And I'm now I've looked at his head too long, and I'm trying to figure out what color, what skin, and what's hair. You know what I mean? Like, I'm having that moment. Um, but he's being gracious. And after two hours, finally, one of my friends figures, figures out an escape, generally escape. He goes, oh, my God, you know what? Our car might be locked in the parking lot. And Dave goes, I'll drive you home, man. And I'm like, no, you have David Lee Roth to do, don't you? Like, you can't be available to drive me home. Somewhere in there, too, there was a costume change, which was odd. Like, he had gone. I, we, none of us even remember it happening, but we know he had two different shirts on. He was wearing a chambray work shirt at the beginning post-show, showered chambray work shirt, rolled up, boom, later on, French pirate boat shirt. When did it happen? I don't know, but he had a different shirt on. We all know it. But I lived with the experience. I had it. It was like, okay. And then we get invited to the Van Halen reunion tour. Uh, pract- they're, 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 they're gonna, it's the last night of rehearsal at the forum. So they invite a small group of people. And by that, it's like 800 people. But in the forum, that's a small group. And they're practicing before they go on tour. And it's Van Halen back together. And Roth comes out. And uh, I think he's probably a gay gentleman. I'm not positive, you know. But there's a, there's a, there was a thing that he did during the show. And it's fine. Where he was sexually posturing. And he did it at my wife. We're right down in the pit uh, with... Uh, Many people from the 80s, many, it was just a pit filled with Warren D. Martini from Rat and George Lynch of Dokken. I'm taking you back a little bit. I know this is like me hearing a Woodstock story. But anyway, <laughs> the point is there were a lot of old rockers and uh, they were doing their thing and they were pretty tight, pretty good. Eddie looked pretty good at this point. I'll, I'll talk about him a little bit later. He enjoys a capri pant, by the way, a short pant uh, rolled at the knee and then a high top and shirtless in that sort of, hmm, is he skinny or homeless? And then I'll, I have an answer to that question for later. So anyway, Roth is doing his thing. And at one point he sees my wife and, and he points at her. My wife's hot and he points at her. And then he grabs his biscuit basket, what we'll call it for the radio, grabs the biscuit basket, and he pulls the shop together. Generally, when you grab the basket, you're letting people know that you've got a biscuit for them, right? A lot of rappers will grab the basket to let you know, I've got it, I brought it, and we, we can use it. I've got it right here. If you're wondering if I got brought it, I did indeed. Here it is. I've got it. But Roth grabbed his, he pulled it all together. Then he licked his finger and stuck it straight up in the air. And then just stared my wife down with a grin. And I'm like, what move is that? Like, what is that where you close up shop and then check the weather? Like, what is that? We might go fishing. I don't know what's happening. And then my wife starts laughing. I'm like, don't laugh at him. You know, because he's right here. And she starts grinning because he won't unlock. And it's just weird. And so then we go to see. Uh... So I'm, now I'm done with it. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta, I, I can't go. My sister, God love her, she gets us tickets to see the last night of the tour, which is here at the Staples Center. And just regular tickets, so we're not too. I'm like, let's not be close. Like, let's let's live it. Let's listen. Let's sort of listen. And we go, and there's lots of fans. Van Halen has the kind of fans that don't even know there's an internet. Like, they just don't know. They've been in a parking lot for a long time. Uh, they've got a Camaro. They've got weed if you need it. And they're ready to go. They're still ready to go. And they're lovely. They're like, what's up, man? Like, they're happy. And the guy next to me held his beer cup the entire night. Just his cup up. Just, whoa! Like, every once in a while, just, yeah! 
apropos of nothing, like before the band even went on, he was just letting you know he was here, he'd been waiting, it was the time he'd been waiting for, he held that cup up. I don't even like my wife enough to hold a cup for two hours, but he loves Van Halen in that way, and so he's doing that. There's two kids that are waiting for the eruption solo, that when it happens, when Eddie plays the classic eruption, these kids talk all the way through it. It's like, oh my God, we've been waiting for this, this is amazing, it's what we've been waiting for, it's what we've been waiting for, this is awesome, it's better than awesome. I'm like, shut up, it's happening, your life is happening now. Finally, Eddie finishes the solo and he does this thing. You know, they've got the cameras now at the big screens and they'd been really wide on Eddie all night. But at the end of the solo, he stood near a camera and he went like that and he yelled and he's like, no teeth. And he puts his foot and I'm like, oh my God, I I recognize him as the guy from in front of the bank. Like he, (laughs) fingers are bloody. It's a mess. I pulled out a dollar. I couldn't even give it to him. So we get to the end, and I'm like, let's get out of here. This is, it was, now I'm like, now I don't even like him anymore. I'm like, I don't like Van Halen. I don't want to see him anymore. I've had enough. It's not the same as when I was a kid. Let's leave this alone. You know, it's like, don't revisit an old girlfriend. Don't do that check-in call. Don't check in on that old boyfriend of yours. Just leave it alone. Let it live in your, save it to, to just, you know what I mean? Don't go revisit it. It's not the right thing to do. And, but, you know, not everything from the past is, you know, the Pixies, you go see them, they're the same. I guess the point is, is if you're hot when you're young, it's going to go bad for you. Because people want, they sexualize you. Not that there was anything sexy about the Pixies, but come on, really. But, you know, they <laughs> sang about science fiction, and they were chunky, and it still looks the same, and it's awesome, and it's beautiful. But the Van Halen, you just don't. And then Poison, we can't even discuss. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. That's Greg Barrett. He'll be joining a whole slew of comedians on the second annual Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, a.k.a. BoatParty.biz. Our music lineup is out now, too. John Roderick hosts with rapper Gene Gray, indie rockers Lake, and the epic Afrobeat band Antibalas. Fourteen members of Antibalas we're bringing on this cruise. You cannot miss this party. This lineup will never set sail again. So get your tickets now at BoatParty.biz. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. There are a lot of good Bill Murray movies. There are a fair number of great Bill Murray movies. But there is only one Bill Murray movie in which he pulls a pistol on a bank security guard while dressed in full-on clown regalia. I'm robbing the bank. What the hell kind of clown are you? To crying on the inside kind, I guess. The setup's pretty straightforward. Murray, Gina Davis, and Randy Quaid pull this really clever bank heist. That's why Murray is in the clown makeup. They've got a million dollars strapped to their bodies, and they seem to be in the clear when Quaid screws everything up. And from then on, it's a classic comic thriller. The clock is ticking. That kind of music is playing, like on a 70s cop show, like... It is on. So their goal is to get to the airport. They've got a flight to the Caribbean to catch. And there are only two things in their way. One is Jason Robards, who plays the police chief. And the second, well, the second is New York City itself. You realize they're probably somewhere in the third world by now. All we've got going for us is the city. Our only hope is that they're mired down in the same that you and I have to wait in every day. Why do I still want this? Every supporting player, and there are some really great ones like Tony Shalhoub and Phil Hartman and even Bob Elliott, who plays that bank security guard we heard earlier, 
All these folks take a backseat here to Murray. This is Bill Murray's movie, and he is wonderful. His character's a guy who just wants to get out of town. It's never really explained why, but it's all he wants. And at every turn, he and Davis and Quaid are met by these crazy, surreal New York set pieces. It's just at the time that, like, violent taxi driver New York turned into friendly Rudolph Giuliani New York. There's one scene where a friendly tourist pulls a stick-up job on them. Two men on bicycles joust in an abandoned basketball court using mops instead of lances. A woman shaves an old man's head with a Bic razor as they sit on a city bus. And then as Murray looks down at this wrinkled, half-shaven head, he says, You're going to even that out, aren't you? There's no one better than Bill Murray at playing beaten down, world-weary, a little bit cynical, but just a little cynical. Because we always know that whatever he faces he'll find a way to talk himself out of it. He'll somehow walk away from a mob den untouched, leave his enemies, I don't know, inspired. You hear those stories about Bill Murray showing up unannounced at house parties, smoking a J and helping to do the dishes? I don't know if they're true, but they feel true. Because it's unimaginable that Bill Murray would walk into any room anywhere and not walk out of that room with his arms around whoever was inside to begin with. That's just who Bill Murray is. He's a pal. And when you're done watching Quick Change, that's how you feel, too. Like his arms are around you, like you've just made a pal. The only problem being that your new pal's in a plane on his way to Martinique. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. Show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Renee Ransom. Our thanks to the Go Team, their label Memphis Industries, for providing our theme music. Dan Wally gives us all of our interstitial music. Oh, man, I saw Dan Wally at a bar the other day, and he told me that he has been DJing for Prince in Los Angeles. Isn't that amazing? Good work, Dan Wally. All our past shows, over a decade's worth, are free and available to you at MaximumFun.org. You can also like Bullseye on Facebook. We're posting tons of interesting links there all of the time. It's at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Just click on like. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.